0: Hey there, podcast fans. Andrew Bray here with my favorite mom and your favorite podcast host, Barbara Bray. Say hello to your fans.
1: Oh, I'm your favorite mom?
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's an easy competition. <laughs>
1: oh. Yeah, I guess that's true. It's the only mom, but that's good. Oh, you're so funny. I love it. I love when we do this.
0: Me too. Me too. I, I know that you've got a lot of things coming up on your plate this spring. Now may not be the time to toot your horn about them, but I'm going to toot your horn about it for you because I get so excited when I hear that other educators and innovators want to learn from you. So some of these listeners here maybe may have a chance to see you at some upcoming conferences. Is that right?
1: Oh, yeah. I'm Going to be at South by Southwest DDU in Austin and then at Q and Palm Springs in March. Both of those are in March. And working on some other ones, but I'm online with a lot of wonderful people who keep me uh, keep me going. I tell you. they're amazing.
0: Mm, good. Now you were telling me about an out-of-the-box learner and fascinating person that you've recently had a conversation with. Tell us a little bit about him.
1: Johannes Kastner. Oh, my gosh. I couldn't stop talking to him. It was the best conversation. I can't wait for people to learn about him. He's a machine learning engineer, a data scientist. We talked about AI and the pros and cons, and he calls it the human-centered AI dilemma. (laughs) (laughs) I want to I in fact there's a lot about it that we even talked about chat GPT and some of the things that are good which you might not know what I'm talking about Andrew but boy do I I just love it I love that stuff and so Johannes and I uh we're gonna do more together but wait do you hear this conversation it's so cool
0: (laughs) (laughs) okay you're you're losing it I love it (laughs) Okay. Don't be, don't be tricked, audience. Uh, if, you, if you don't know what machine <laughs> learning is, this person's had a crazy life story. And uh, hopefully some of you can connect with uh, a little bit of that wonderful web. So stay tuned for the conversation with Barbara Bray and Johannes Kastner.
1: Hi, everyone. This is Barbara Bray. I have someone very exciting and interesting. I cannot wait for you to meet him. Johannes Kastner. Hi, Johannes.
2: Hello, Barbara. How are you?
1: I'm so happy we finally got together.
2: (laughs) Yes, yes, me too.
1: We've had so many um, interruptions like COVID, (laughs) power going out, but we finally did it so wonderful
2: wonderful yes definitely and you know i guess it counts to to be there in the end
1: yes we finally did it and i'm excited and i i want to share a little bit about you to my audience so a little bit of boasting Mm -hmm. is that okay absolutely (laughs) so i'm gonna say your whole name and say i hope i say it right johannes kastner is that right yeah. Oh, yeah. good. Works for several consultancies in artificial intelligence, we call that AI, and machine learning, I'm going to say ML, right?
2: Yeah, yeah, those <laughs> are the common abbreviations.
1: <laughs> well, you had them as abbreviations, I said, I better say, tell everyone what they are, <laughs> just in case. Right,
2: right, no, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> and human-centered ethical AI is an important sense of collective intelligence, and yes, we're going to talk about that definitely. Great. Johannes pivoted CollectiveWise as his consultancy around collective intelligence and the capability sensitive design framework for AI. Uh, I've been following all that you're doing and your approach is really unique. And we're going to, I mean, it's almost like you're on the cusp of something so big right now. I am so looking forward to talking with you about this
2: Welcome. Yeah, fantastic. I'm looking forward to it as well.
1: Ah, This is so great. Well, I want people to know a little bit about you. Would you like to just do a short overview of maybe, how about just a little bit about where you were brought up and born, and then we'll talk about what happened when you came to the States.
2: Sure, sure. Yeah, so I I started as I was born in in Northern Germany, and I grew up there for the first few well yeah for for the first years of my life I want to say it that way (laughs) I I grew up in northern Germany and then um you know after after it sort of failed for me in school for for maybe reasons we might get into um I I was sent to a dormitory for for children who are difficult to raise uh in in the south of Germany
1: oh wait a minute wait (laughs) a minute wait a minute we need to let our audience hear that again because you were difficult to raise, and you went to a dormitory
2: mm-hmm. first. What is a dormitory? Well, I guess you know this is the word that I that I heard used in America, uh, but I, I don't. Have, you know, it's, 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 in German, it's Internat. It's it's like a place where it's sort of like a boarding school, but where the emphasis is not on the school, right? So it's it's, it's you're being boarded, and let's put it that way. You know, you're being <laughs> it's boarding plus um, these uh, these people who who are there to to raise you instead of your parents, in a way, um, and, and yeah, that that's kind of what it is. So you're being raised by some strangers who are, uh, I feel quite authoritarian, I suppose, um, and and that's that's what it was for me for five years until. My mother got a hold of of figuring out a way to to take me out of out of there, and and her husband, uh, whom she was married to, they they worked really hard to get me out of there, and they they finally did that when I was I think I was like twelve or thirteen. I am not hundred percent sure, and that's what brought me to Vienna, Austria, where where they my mother had remarried and um and married the the father of my my brother, who is now in Kigali. A whole different story. A whole different adventure, <laughs> and um, and uh, she she had married married him, and my brother didn't exist yet. Uh, he 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 actually was born when I was seventeen, and and they brought me to Vienna, Austria, to live with them, uh, and that's where, yeah, where where difficulties came came about because I I wasn't really educated. I had zero education up to that point, more or less. I mean that you know I, I can't really call it education what happened in this dormitory, right? So. And, and earlier on, the difficulty to raise, well, that was also determined by a school where, you know, where, where I didn't really cope very well with the way that, that it was run, and, and which had to do something with, I think, with my mother's philosophy and, and how she had raised me up to that point. Plus, also... With the fact that my mother and my father were being divorced when, when I was six. And I think it, it was difficult for me at the time. I mean, I don't remember yeah. this as a difficulty now, but that's what I was told. <laughs> you
1: know, um, you know, what really bothers me is they said that when you were six or seven, six or seven. And yeah, and they made that decision to put you in a place where they didn't provide any education. And yeah. And when we start sharing what you do. I mean, you're, I'm just going to say, I think you're genius. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I never recognized uh, <laughs> it, that your brain probably was just so far ahead and you needed to know more and wanted to know more and wanted to do more, probably. I mean, that's what I'm yeah, thinking. Yeah, and I,
2: th- I think it had to do with my mother's philosophy, which was based on, she she told me recently, we talked about this, and she she had this uh, Summer Hill, um, which, there was a book written about this Summer Hill program, which is a the school in England. I know about it. There was, um, yeah, yeah. So, so that 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 kind of I think that's that's you know that philosophy that she she had raised me by herself basically. Up, well, my, my my father was was working in in Braunschweig. He was in the uh, not really by herself. I mean, up until the divorce point, uh, you know, I was with my father and my mother, and uh, my father was a, is still an artist and sculptor. And um, he was working, you know, he started art school and, and he was very young, actually. He was, he was younger than my mother. And uh, he had worked in Braunschweig and so he would come back on the weekends. So he was actually kind of often gone during the week for art school and then on the weekends he would be there. And and my mother had really taken over the way that I was raised. And it was, you know, she had studied pedagogy. So she was, you know, really kind of putting a lot of thoughts into how to raise me. And I guess she, she might have overthought it a little bit because that made me impossible for the school to handle, you know, because this, the schools weren't that way in Germany. No, that time.
1: not even here in the United States. But Summerhill yeah. is one of those where you're on your own and you you kind of... Go on your own journey, and and the educators, the teachers, and the parents, and everyone are kind of helping you guide you. But that's it. It's, yeah. See, I wrote about Summerhill. was not that interesting? Oh,
2: you did. <laughs> yes. Oh, yeah. That is very interesting. Yeah,
1: I have two books on personalized learning, and and Summerhill is one of the strategies that we you know researched. So the problem is, is um, that's a whole chunk of your life. I mean, a very important yeah. part of your life that you were put in a situation which was more, uh, it sounded like juvenile hall or something. It just sounded like yeah, they were, yeah,
2: yeah, the sessions.
1: which is very sad because of that time. But you overcompensated over it. And then you <laughs> decided um, to, I think you were 19, you decided to come to the United States, right? Yes, yes, that's
2: right, that's right. Yeah, so so my mother was a theater critic, and so she she got uh, I could go to all the places I wanted to go to for free, and and take friends with me, dates with me, and so on, and and I I, I took a lot of of advantage of that, and I think and in, in fact she got this position partially to help you know educate me because I wasn't really into reading very much, and <laughs> so at that time uh, I, I got into that later, um, but um, at that time so I, I got a lot of chance to. See uh, theater theater place, and I think that really helped me. Uh, you know that that helped me in 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 in, in, a, in a big way. I think art and 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 uh, music and, and art and theater these these are these are things that really that, that sort of free your mind and make you think in ways. You know, so I think it wasn't completely. And then on top of that, there was a a learned psychologist who was hired to help me out and 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 to actually get sort of the lowest degree that you can get. Well, except for that there is one that that's for, for people who are not, not intelligent. Right. But then there's one that's, that's sort of for, it's not a high school degree, but it's, it's below that. Right. So for, for people who can then do an apprenticeship. So in order for me to do an apprenticeship, which I did next, I, I had to do this. Um, this degree. And for that, I needed to get some help from a learned psychologist. Uh, and, and he was uh, called Dr. Groman, interestingly. I, mean, I guess, you know, in English, a, it has this interesting meaning. And, and so he, I went to his house every day and he taught me mathematics and, and, you know, he taught me a lot of things and spent a lot of time with him. So that, that was basically the education I had prior to going to Santa Monica College.
1: Wow. More or less. Wow. Yeah, you probably, learned, you probably learned more than most people. I mean, you know, in a school setting. Yeah, yeah. he was really yeah. good.
2: Yeah, he was a really good pedagogue. He really was very helpful. But it was only one year, you know, so it was in one year basically to catch me up on the very, very basics, you know, on, on what people have to know in order to start an apprenticeship, which I did then in, uh, in, in stonemasonry. So I started an apprenticeship in, in stonemasonry in Austria. Before coming to America, <laughs> and and that's you know it was a very interesting area, and, and you know I, I was working on, on restoring old churches and so on, but it goes on on your body, you know it it it's physical, it's very physical, and and specifically because everybody you know and I was you know uh, I was fourteen when I started there, so uh, and and everybody there drinks a lot, so it's it's sort of a an a, almost a a requirement to drink a lot of, consume a lot of alcohol in this job, oh. <laughs> yeah. and uh, you know, fourteen-year-old 14 drinking every day—it it, was—it was really, um, you know, hard on my body. And and then, uh, you know, an, an older colleague of mine uh, who had been sick for three months. I met him and then uh, when I went to see a concert, and, and he, he persuaded me to get out of this profession and leave it. And then you know I, I worked a little bit at a record shop selling records you know with absolutely you know like you know one of those jobs that, that you do that you know have you know <laughs> um, and and then I, I gathered enough money to to buy a ticket and go to l a uh, you know wow. <laughs> and I just just you know I, I was in the yeah it's really it's it's a wild story too because I was in this bar with my friends you know and uh, and and I said, oh, I'm going to leave in a few days. I'm going to go to Los Angeles or or New York. So I threw up a, a coin in here, and <laughs> and it decided that I was going to LA. Oh, that's <laughs> that's how that's how how you I did it! Decided.
1: Oh my gosh!
2: Yeah, I think every... I had no idea about either place.
1: Wow. Well, at least if it, it depends on the weather, it was probably easier because you told me you were yeah. homeless. <laughs>
2: That's true. I spent it at home. Yeah, much easier. I think the other choice would have been very hard. I might have gone back. Who knows what would have happened if I had gone to New York right wow. away. Wow.
1: And it's just amazing. <laughs> I mean, what I tell everyone is that I always do like a pre-podcast and we had talked about some of these and I'm I'm learning about your life and thinking this could be a, a movie. Because <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah. when you told me about when you were, you know, you lived in a van and Close to the cemetery, right? <laughs> Is that
0: right?
2: Yeah, behind the, behind the cemetery. cemetery. Yeah, 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 exactly. And
1: then you said uh, how you started in a band. I mean, yeah, yeah. That that was kind of the reason I
2: went. Right, I I, I looked at the music. I was uh, really intrigued by American music, especially um, you know early rock and roll, Chuck Berry, but also jazz. You know, really jazz. Is is one of I think one of the main reasons I went to the West Coast in the end, you know. Wow. Um, a, you know, I'm a huge fan of Miles Davis still. Oh, I still did you, <laughs> did you play an instrument but, uh, or did you sing or what was your sing, yeah, so I sing. I sing and I played a harmonica as well, you know, a bit. Um, but mostly sing.
1: Oh wow. <laughs> well, we might have to someday have you sing for us.
2: <laughs> oh. Be, be an honor and a pleasure. Uh, well, let's, let's I still like to sing. I, I sing to my children. <laughs> These are the only people who get to experience that at this And point. Your wife. I love it. They enjoy Oh, it. <laughs> that's
1: sweet. How old are your children? Real quick. What does, I want to know. If.
2: Um, I, have, I have three. Um, uh, one, the oldest one is 18. She's, she now lives with my mother in Vienna, actually, where I started out. Wow. Interestingly for her, it's a different experience. And uh, the, the other ones are two boys. Uh, one of them is only six months and the other one is uh, almost four.
1: Wow. It it'll be interesting to follow their journey now in school and what you do since what happened to you, because that is. Yeah, it, it really
2: is. Well, amazing. My daughter had a bit of a difficult time early on as well. So she's a bit, you know, she's she's. Well, she's preparing to do an animal uh, animal behavior school, which is quite there's a, oh. a well known one in Vienna. Wow. It's associated with the Konrad Lawrence Institute, and we'll see how that goes. But she has to really work hard to improve her German,
0: because <laughs> oh.
2: unfortunately, so I was so I guess I was in a way traumatized, you could say. You know, I, I don't want to overuse this word, and I guess I, I didn't really have that horrible of a time, but I was a bit hor a little bit. Traumatized by Austrian culture when I was a teenager. And so I I didn't speak any German at all to her, unfortunately. Mm. And and I realized this to be a mistake. So I I speak to both of those boys uh, entirely, only in German. And we we might even go for a month or two to Berlin in the summer this year to, to, to enforce that. Because they're also learning French, because my wife is French. Wow, (laughs) trilingual.
1: That's really going to be wonderful. Yeah,
2: yeah, Yeah. that's the hope.
1: Yeah, well, she'll probably learn German pretty fast, because she's going to have to.
2: (laughs) Yeah, she's working on it. She she actually speaks it quite well now. She has a hard time with the reading and writing, and that's actually quite, that's crucial in in the school that she's going, that she's working to get into. She has to actually to do reading and writing, yeah. critical writing and so on. Well,
1: Google, Google
2: Translate
1: oh, works education. pretty well. <laughs> not great. <laughs> it's an AI. We could talk, it's improving. We'll talk about that too, but that's, that's another one. But you, when, okay, so you not only were in a band, you were also in TV and movies, right?
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, this was not purposeful. That sort of happened by, by chance, I want to say. You know, I, I, was, uh, I was working as a day laborer, uh, and, you know, I would go to Home Depot in the morning at 5 a.m. And I would stand out there uh, with people from El Salvador, Guatemala, Mexico, and so on. And uh, I would actually share a room with uh, with with 12 guys, um, you know, from, from Latin America. <laughs> they couldn't speak English. I couldn't speak English. I couldn't speak Spanish. They couldn't speak German. You know, we, we, we communicated with hand gestures and, you know, little phrases here and there. But it was really fun, actually. And so... But one of the customers, she was a casting agent, and she had this uh, this role that I could try out. You know, uh, when I had this really long hair and I looked a bit like a rock and roller, right? And so she she sent me to this particular uh, audition, and they hired me. and you know they hired me for a very small role in Chicago Hope, and I, I I did it. And then from there on, you know, I realized that the potential of just making money, pure, you know, just. Just that i, I wasn't really I, I liked theater, but i i wasn't i w- immediately was a bit taken aback by the Hollywood culture <laughs> I have to say even early on yeah. you know, uh, the, the, the independent movies were interesting, but these these big productions there there's a lot of you know there's, there's cultural issues that I have with them but but you know I made good money and and then i um and then I went to police auctions and I bought old muscle cars you know from the seventies and sixties. <laughs> And uh, I rented them out to the and actually made more money on that, actually, than, okay. than on the acting. You know what's
1: amazing? I've already talked to you. We've already gone through this. You never told me about the muscle cars. you. And then you told me about the different TV no, right. shows you were on. <laughs> I said, I told you, this is going to be like we're on our, my porch going, What? <laughs> it's
2: been, yeah, yeah,
1: it's been yeah. fun. But you know, you went to. You were able to go to college. You went to Santa Monica College. Yes. And you didn't have a degree, yeah. a high school yeah. degree.
2: No, no. No, the amazing thing is they let you just do that. If you're over 18, they, they let you study there. You have to have no qualifications. And, and that's great. It's a great backdoor. In a way,
1: you know? Yeah. I mean, but you ended up, remember, I'm, I'm trying to, because you were telling me your, your background and there was, what, six, seven years without any education. And now you've yeah, already yeah, you true. became an apprentice, and then you were a rock star, <laughs> <laughs> and then you're a movie star, <laughs> and then you're a yeah, muscle. I'm, I'm not sure about
2: rock star, but
1: yeah, okay. So then you got.
2: 300 books. <laughs> <I'm, laughs>
1: I know, but it's just, what a great story you have. And then you ended up studying cultural anthropology and going. Yeah. And ended up at Columbia, in New York. Is that right?
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I started with Cultural Anthropology at, at Santa Monica College, where, where the, the reason why I started studying this was because there was a phenomenon prof, prof, phenomenal professor there. Her name was Dr. Joan Barker, and uh, she was just really... I don't know. I guess she was the one person at Santa Monica College who changed the most majors, I was told, because <laughs> <laughs> she, she really got, got, you know, she had this imagination uh, for, for this field. And, and it really drew me in. And, you know, I'm very interested in culture and the, the various ways that human expression happens around the, you know, cultural expression happens around the world. I'm still very interested in that. But then at Columbia, yeah, I had to add economics to it because at, at Columbia, the anthropology department was a little bit different from what I expected. To, to tell you the truth, <laughs> you know, sort of poetic nonsense—I some people call it. <laughs> but it.
1: But economics led to the Federal Reserve position. Yeah.
2: yeah I, right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that was great. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. That was my first job. Um, out of college, was working for the Federal Reserve Bank as a research assistant for the great macroeconomist Christopher Foote. It was a really great experience. I I, I often think about this time. And it also allowed me to take courses at Harvard and MIT, which I hadn't gotten myself into Harvard as a special graduate student. So no degree, uh, as a non-degree student. And uh, they they paid for the courses and, and they gave me the time to do it. So so I mean I had to work forty hours, but I could arrange it the way I wanted to, uh, minus the weekends. They wouldn't let me work on the weekends, but that was probably a good thing.
1: <laughs> you know, Johannes, it's, they recognize your genius. They recognize you. because this isn't doesn't happen to just everybody. You know, when you think I mean, you uh... you started school without you know you started college without a a, a formal education. And look what you did! Yeah. And so your mother, that, that foundation that you got from your mom, yeah. that was it. Yeah,
2: very much so. That was it. Yeah, I think that's right. Even like walking or just being able to be outside in nature as a child, I think was also very important. And I want to uh, make sure my my children have this experience as well. Because I, I spent most of my days as a as a little child out there in the forest. You know? <laughs> <laughs> that was really, I think that's a part of it. You know, yeah. I think that's a part of. You know, I think this this sort of stillness that you get from a forest is, I think, what what really allows the space to think and to develop your mind. You know, I think that's that's I think also an important part to add, adding that to the to the rest of the things we talked about.
1: Well, I'm going to bring up what the problem that I see with schools is that we schedule we schedule kids and we tell them what to learn and we tell them how to think and what happens is we lose yeah. that ability to, to have our own critical thinking strategies, our own curiosities to, you know, spark them so we could want to learn. Yeah. And what your mom did.
2: Absolutely.
1: Unfortunately that, you know, you had that period of time where you probably didn't have it, but I bet you were spark, your curiosity was yeah. still there. You were probably constantly thinking, yeah, constantly yes. wanting to do things in it.
2: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Because
1: yeah. you can't hold it back. Well,
2: I put a lot of thought into breaking out. You know, I was thinking to break out of the donut. <laughs> <laughs> I had all of these fantasies about breaking out and burning the place down, you know. But I always thought, oh, no, but there couldn't be any children in it if I burned it down. Yeah, so oh, my God. I'm <laughs> glad you didn't do that. Thoughts.
1: We wouldn't know you now. You'd be in jail yes. or something. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> yes. So you you went to MIT for, uh, you took a course in experimental behavioral and behavioral economics.
2: Yes, yes, with Ernst Fair. Oh, phenomenal course so I, yeah actually this was great I, I was um uh, I was part of preparing a behavioral uh, economics seminar at the Federal Reserve Bank and where a lot of luminaries from economics um, uh, from the discipline uh, attended it and among them was uh, was Ernst fair and I you know and, and it happened to me that I was placed next to him at the dinner at a sort of lunch or dinner table, I don't remember which which it was, but I, I think it was dinner, right? Because the, the, I think the event happened in the evening, and uh, and I told you know, and he just asked me about my interests and you know what I'm working on and, and so on, and I said you know I'm really interested in in, in figuring out a way to combine the ideas of of, of cultural anthropology with um, with economics. And, and he said, "Oh, you should attend my class because, uh, in, you know, we 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 do some experiments and we do we do them cross nationally and so on. And we are, we're, you know, and 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 I'll be talking about that in my course. is what he what he told me. And that really, yeah, that that was uh, the impetus for taking this course. And that's where I learned experimental methods and about. And I had known about behavioral economics a bit uh, prior to that, because I. Uh, I was just fascinated by this, uh, you know, what Daniel Kahneman and, and Traversky had done. And so I, I read up on all of these things, but I didn't really know this cross, cross-cultural studies. And I, I had absolutely no idea about how to run an experiment, which I had to do in this course. You know, It was the first experiment and, and I wasn't doing it on my own. We, uh, I had to group up with four people. And and do it, and and that was a, a great experiment experience. Because I guess you know, in in reality, you know, if you're a scholar and you're working in this field, you, you always work with other people. You you don't just do it on your own. And so that so so that course kind of forced you to to work as a as a scholar in, would in this field. You know, so it was, it was a great introduction to it.
1: It amazes me the opportunities you had, how they opened
2: doors to new doors and more doors. And yeah. It's not that I never squandered any either. I have to say I have squandered some opportunities. Also.
1: Well, I think that it's a matter of you know which one do you take because you probably had multiple you know things coming at you and 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 yeah. you're kind of like you know I'm kind of a little bit like you a little ADD <laughs> you know I mean <laughs> it's yeah. like I I want to do yes. everything and I but I can't so you had to make a choice and um, yeah but yeah. I, I'm just. I mean, you told me about one course, and I can't remember where it was. Maybe at Har—it uh, was a ethics and game theory course at Harvard. Is that the one, or, or the one?
2: Well, not not game theory, but yeah, no, I know I know which one you're talking about with Amartya Sen. So this this was probably the most important course I've That's ever taken. That's the one. That's uh, the one. Because, yeah, yeah it, it it was on, on welfare economics and. Uh, and inequality and social choice. I guess the title I think was "Welfare Economics, Social Choice, and Inequality." I, I'm, I'm not sure what the title exactly was, but he co-taught this with uh, James Foster, and it was a, a, um, a life-changing experience. Really, just having the proximity to him and uh, you know having some exchanges on a much more personal level as well. But understanding you know where he was coming from uh, with with his book. Um, and, uh, well, the first book that I read by him was called Development as Freedom, but um, then I uh, now, now uh, I guess the, the work that really summarizes most of his work is called The Idea of Justice. Oh. That's the one I would recommend if someone's interested it's, in reading in up on. I think better
1: write that one down. And, um, yeah.
2: Okay. Yeah, you know, that that course was um, was really substantial. And, you know, thinking of, of technology today, as I'm a technologist, you know, i I, I I can really see that the, the problem with, with techn- most technologists is that they don't have this background. You know, they don't have this, this background in thinking about humans. At the end of the day, I think all technology and all of uh, everything we do is, is about humans and maybe the environment, animals as well, but, but not technology itself. But right? technology is a, is a means to an end mm-hmm. and to understand you know, how we can think of these ends, you know, uh, you know, how we should think about it or how we could think about them that i think is, is critical you know if you, if you if you go so deeply into technology what happens to you and it happened to me also at, at times is you, you get you get absorbed by the technicalities of it the, the mathematics of it and so on and you start seeing the whole world in, in those terms instead of uh, and, and, and you lose track sometimes of the of the bigger picture of what it is that you're actually trying to solve you know what what are you actually working on what is technology good for what does it do in the end of the day and you know to have a good perspective on this, on you know, and, and especially when you're serving you know algorithms these days and technology these days serves people around the globe. They, you don't you don't just build a system that so- solves problems for people who are like you or who, are, who live in your Western world or you know in the, in the market economy or something like that. But you're actually trying to scale, right? Which which means uh, often, or, or that's you know what most uh, most technology companies do, right? They try to scale as much as they can and, and solve sort of, and, and, and that kind of, uh, you know, creates a bit of a flattening, you know, you're, you're, you're trying to fit everyone into this, into the same box, really, you know, but, yeah. and, and that's, you know, that, that's a problem. And, but, but then, you know, what, how, how should you think about solving people's problems in general? And I, and I think it's, it's really about understanding the ethics of the people who you serve in the end of the day the stakeholders mm-hmm. the so-called stakeholders and 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 then also maybe people who might be inadvertently affected by this as, as well right so if you if you're really ethical you don't just care about your users and the people who give you money but you also care about the people who might be um who, who sort of might be the innocent bystanders if you will right
1: yeah i want to bring that up because i mean i want, i I'm so happy you're talking about this because I'm starting, I was using uh, an AI open AI program called chat GPT. And I was excited about it mm-hmm. because I was thinking, you know, I'm not really sure how, what words would be best for me. And I'm, and I'm yeah. writing an article yeah. and I put it and I put it in and it comes up and it sounds beautiful. And then I realized, yeah. wait a minute, some of this is somebody's work that, I need to credit, but they're not telling me who it is. That was one thing. Oh, That was one thing. Another, they were putting a reference in and I looked it up and it was not one that I would use. And so I was thinking, how can we trust an AI program like ChatGPT or another one where they kind of direct us and we think we're getting smarter but what's happening there, there is yeah. that collective intelligence that you were talking about. They're grabbing yeah. resources and, and uh, content, context, and content. They're bringing a lot of it in from other people that might be saying the same yeah. things. But who are those people? And where yeah. is it coming from? And what is this collective intelligence? Actually, bringing to the p- table. It helped me, but I was smart enough to do some research to change it enough to make it yeah. me and put in the correct uh, references and things like that. But not everyone's like that. Mm-hmm,
2: mm-hmm. No, no. This is this is really, uh, especially in a world of fake news and disinformation and so on. These these things can aggravate this problem, right? Rather than solving it, you know, it's 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 terrible in a way. But you know, it's it, it's because you know, ChatGPT Ch- and 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 other ones that um, were before it, they're, they're uh, instances of of a, of a concept called a transformer. So, um, mm. and and these transformers, they're they they can. They're 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 interesting. They're, they're new. They're really ra- rather new technology that allows um, sequen- learning about sequences, but in parallel because it. So if you have a sequence of numbers, for example, right, that come in, in a sort of order, an ordered list of things, or or words, right, in the text, uh, they're ordered, right? They have a, an order to them. And uh, and previously, what uh, uh, there were there were algorithms called the LSTMs, long-term short-term memory networks, for example. And they, they had to literally process each element at a time, right? So in order to to predict the next one or something like that, or to make you know, um, but but ChatGPT and 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 the other big uh, big language models, as they're also called, they can do this in parallel because they they, they uh, put a, a positional encoding on every element in the sequence, and then they can actually parallelize the process, so they can they can compute these the out-of-sequence because they have the positional element with it, right? So, so it retains the positional element to it, but, but they can process the whole thing in parallel. So you can you can actually ma- uh, train massive train them on massive amounts of data, and that's what they do, right? So in order to get this sort of human-like, uh, sort of faking human intelligence, I want to say, you know, this mm-hmm. human-like way of using language, what they have to do, and, and you don't have to do that with humans, by the way, this is also a notable, uh, you know, something that should be noted, right? We we can learn from small data, if you will. We can expose children to the books that they should read because they're excellent books. But but these um, algorithms, in order to give you the performance that they do, you have to train them on the entire internet or, or well, I don't know, or all of Reddit or something, like massive amounts of data, right? And uh, we would never tell our children, go and read everything on the internet. You know, that, that would obviously be wrong, right? But that's exactly what these things do, right? So it's, it's like we would, we would direct our children to the excellent literature only, right? Not, and, and, and to actually ignore, we would actually direct them to say, hey, you have to know what to ignore because that's very important. But these algorithms don't really know what to ignore. They are fed massive amounts of data and indiscriminately. And, and, and then, you know, the outcomes are kind of, you know, garbage in garbage out in a way right i mean it's, it's not to say that they're that there's that they produce garbage i, I don't think they always produce garbage they, they can in fact be helpful i, I have not used uh you know uh to for to full disclosure here i've not used the language models yet i'm, I'm about, i am i am planning on on playing around with them and using them or well seeing at least what what they give me right but i haven't had the chance yet i i've worked with diffusion models to create um Crazy graphics for my for my podcast. Oh, really? <laughs> I don't know if you've seen it. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so, the beginning of it, the, the the intro to the show, you know, it has um, I'm using diffusion models to produce these visuals there, and they're interesting oh. models. Also, they they're also related in because they're also transformers, I think. And, and yeah, so but but they're different. They're they're definitely different, I and mean, you can easily see what you're getting. Right, you can sort of experiment with them.
1: It's, it is it is it's I mean I have to say I I had to try it because I am a writer I wanted to see because I really feel I need to be a better writer sure I thought well maybe the you know the AI because mm-hmm. you talked about human-centered AI and the and actually yeah. you, I read a I listened to a podcast you did of the ethical dilemma of human-centered AI and I thought
2: oh yeah, yeah that was a talk yeah. Yeah, yeah A special talk I think it yeah. Well,
1: maybe we can put a link and to it if people. The
2: Institute for Science and Technology. Yeah,
1: because we can put it on the blog that goes. Yeah, with great, it. great, But it's uh, what amazes me is that I mean, there's a lot of talk about it right now uh, from educators trying to figure out what to do because there are schools and districts mm. in the United States that are banning ChatGPT because they call it a cheating element, especially for. Kids that are writing essays for for you know entrance examinations
2: for college. I I think I, I would not recommend that route. It's it's for the same reason that I wouldn't recommend banning calculators for mathematics yeah, I agree. Uh, courses because obviously you know
1: it's driving me crazy. I, you know, it's like banning books. Me. I mean, it's like yeah. that. I think if we teach the tools. And tell them to do what I did: do the research to find out what where yeah. it is is going to get make them even smarter,
2: right? Well, well, not just tell them that, but test them on that, right? So, so we have to change the test them. So, like if, if we test before for whatever you know coherence or this and that, and you know, um, now we have to change that, right? So we have to realize that people have, have these tools and that they should use them. We should teach them how to use them properly, which. Who knows how to do that? Actually, um, I I don't. Um, how to use ChatGPT properly, right? So this this has to be something that has to be developed yeah. as a as a philosophy, right? That, you know how a new philosophy of, of writing, right? It has to emerge where where we can use mm-hmm. these, but we should learn how to use them. Just like how previously we had to learn how to write a good essay. Yeah. Now we have to do more. We have to we have to learn how to properly use um, these tools. Uh, to 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 write better essays or to write more but in a in a good way, right? In a in a way that makes that that sort of integrates these tools in our assessment of, you know, did this person use this tool well? Did this person not so that's not, not part of writing. It, you know, I, I feel that we should do do it that way.
1: I mean, when we tell kids not to do something, they're gonna do it. When you ban a book, they're going to buy Of course, I mean that that kids are smarter than that. Just like you. you, they put you in a place, and you figured out a way that maybe you'll break out. At least you didn't burn it down, right? So that, that was good. But but I just want to now tell a little bit about you. Um, and wait a minute, where did I put it? Your because um, you're an independent consultant, but you also have Collective Wise, right?
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're right. Um, you know, so I, I'm I'm still working on how to divvy things up. I'm I'm thinking collective is really special for in, in terms of projects where where collective intelligence is sought and not just uh, you know an algorithm that can tell the difference between a giraffe and an elephant or something like that. You know, which I will also want to help with. Um, you know, if if it's if if it's put to good use. So there's I, I want to distinguish in a way between AI and CI, what I call CI, collective intelligence. Hmm. But but the, the this distinction isn't the boundary is a little bit blurry there because um you know cooperative AI is kind of I see it as sort of the, the dual of collective intelligence.
0: Mm-hmm. You
2: know, when 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 algorithms cooperate with humans and in a way ChatGPT could become that, right? It could become an assistant to writers. I guess that would be the ideal. That, you know I think that of, of technology always has that in that way well I mean
1: uh, uh, real quick my background was in tech I was an educational technologist and um, I got to the point my family never saw me because I was so excited about everything I found out and wanted to get every tool every and learn about everything and that's what happens when you're kind of a, just learning about something new but the technology now yeah. is everywhere everybody has a phone everybody, you know, has some access. I mean, even in some of the poorest areas, they they use the technology. Yeah. And so, Absolutely. so, but we don't teach this. We don't teach what you're talking about is, is how to collectively work on some of these strategies together. So collective intelligence, basically, what, what do you see in schools or uh, for the future? What do you think would be really good?
2: Oh, wow. Um, that's that's a that's a really interesting. You put me a little bit on the spot there. <laughs> I mean, I, I think that mathematical education needs to radically be reformed along the lines of what um, Conrad, Conrad uh, Wolfram.
1: has. Oh, I love uh, that. Has a
2: program I love on, on on yeah. So so I think that's that's you know to to create a playful way to interact with computation and to think of mathematics more of a, as a as a computational. Um, uh, well, you know, because, because the thing is, you know, learning how to, to add 398 and 263, for example, is, is not really a skill that's useful, right? Uh, actually. So we, we, should, we should just get rid of that as a, as a thing to be taught, right? Uh, even multiplication tables, all of that stuff is actually not useful. But, um, you, you never need that when you're working with actual, you know, when you're using mathematics at, at a workplace, <laughs> you know, when, when you're building models. Models in AI, or when you're doing research on on new algorithms, for example. Now, I am not a research um, uh, I'm not a researcher in AI or anything like that. But well, I I know a bit about it from from my friends who are, and I know that they don't do these kind of calculations. You know, neither in their head nor on paper nor on you know any in any way. They they feed that to a machine, right? I, I, we all do that right now, uh, even a simple calculator. Uh, beats beats that approach. Right. So so why are we still teaching mathematics as if there were no machines?
0: That's right. right? And,
2: and I guess that can go to the writing aspect as well, right? So we can we can actually say we shouldn't teach a field in any way where we ignore major advances, you know, in that area. And and I don't know what kind of advanced chat G- GPT is in the area of writing, but it, it clearly is something in that space? You know, it, it can help people. And how how we have to think about this? So, so we need a new Conrad Lawrence. You know, I'm sorry, Conrad Wolfram. For for to to focus on. You know, so, someone has to come out and say, okay, we have to rework what writing actually is and how it should be taught in in the light of these new advances. You know, we know that there's definitely bad ways of using chat GPT and there are better ways of using it. And so. What that means is to be defined, I suppose, you know, because this, hasn't, this is really really new. And so the, the other aspect of what you just asked is we have to be prepared to teach people not like we used to the tools or, or methods, but actually a way to learn new methods fast. So I guess the, the thing is that, that the, the world of technology is advancing so quickly and, and it will touch upon every area um, that, that we teach, then uh, what we have to teach children is how to learn things fast and how to play with new ideas. And, you know, just, you know, like I said, you know, I want to play with chat GPT. That's how I think of it. I think of it as a playing. Yeah. Um, it's, it's a type of playing. And, and you know, and, and if you if you approach it with that kind of perspective, you know, from that kind of angle as, as playing rather than Working, or now I'm learning something, or I'm studying or doing something like you know, you, you're, you're, you're making it sound grim. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs>
2: you know, it doesn't have to be that way.
1: <laughs> you know, I mean, you're just talking about everything I've been wanting to do because I do play shops instead of workshops. I want to do play because I think ah. if you can make learning fun, then you're more engaged. If you can get in the flow, I don't know if you know Mahali, but he talks about uh, this concept of flow which means that your your skill and your challenges is high and you can't you it's like if you're doing something and someone comes in and says you know you haven't eaten yet i I know but i'm in the middle of something and i don't want to stop that's what we want our kids to be like and and how do we do that when we say oh the bell just rang and we got to go to the next subject or something schools Ah. are made in a situation where um, it's almost like the school you went to when from six to 12, we, were, we changed our brains so we had to be compliant and we didn't know and we yeah, couldn't yeah. use that, you know, be curious and be excited about wanting to learn. I love...
2: Absolutely, right? It has probably to do with the fact that in the 19th century, right? So in the age of industrialization, um, that was a useful paradigm, right because children needed to learn how to sort of be a cog in the bigger machine, I suppose, and it, it, you know it lifted a lot of living standards, so I, I don't want to you know um, say that it was all wrong, um, it was all wrong. But, but you know now we're in a different <laughs> yeah. world.
0: <laughs> yeah,
2: <laughs> I think I think you're right. I mean, it was all wrong, but, but, but we didn't know any better then, and it was probably better than no schooling, which was yeah. what preceded yeah. it. So so we we now all can read. We can all go to the library. We have all of these advantages, and I think a lot of it was to do has to do with the fact that we instituted uh, a universal education. So so that you know that first step was important. How it was uh, you know how it was delivered was obviously you know from our perspective now completely wrong. Um, But also that's because we now live in a different age and we expect different things from people than we did in the 19th century. And and that's good for all of us as well, because these expectations actually are better ones, I think, for the human being uh, than than they were in the 19th century. But it was sort of like you could say we had to push through this time. I mean, I wouldn't want want to live during that time you know that you know that's another aspect another thing to consider but but you know it, it was maybe required to have you know for humanity as a whole to have gone through this period where you know we started educating people and we, we didn't do it well but we did it and we did it well enough that people could read this the signs on the road for example right? this is you know to us now that sounds trivial that everyone can read the signs on the road but that wasn't always the case yeah. So we have to keep that perspective. Well,
1: but not everyone reads. We still have problems with the, the way education is. Not we still have people past yeah, Are illiterate, but literate. But they the thing that we oh gosh, I have to end this pretty soon, and I don't want to. I'm just enjoying this so much. <laughs> yes. yeah, I, I, too, I tell too. you, this really is like. This I mean. We'll have to have you come back and really talk about uh, some of these things in, in a little more detail, but um, I do want I'd to let you. everyone know about what you're doing next, because it's coming up soon. You have your podcast. Can you tell us a little, little bit about that?
2: Yeah, so in the spirit of what Amartya, so Amartya saying in this book, you know, the idea of justice, he, he brings up one point that that this is related to, which is, um, what we need is public discourse, you know, public discussion. And, and we need that in, in, in respect to ethics because ethics, you know, ethics is different in different cultures. Different cultures have different ethical principles, but actually when you look at, when you look at the whole world and the different principles, many of them, you know, could be, could work together. Right. So, so, so many, uh, we have some principles in common with other ethical systems and so on and there are some conflicts for sure but but to find out what the actual conflicts are we have to first figure out you know what our principles really are what you know for each one of us we have to really figure out what is this ethical system that i want that i'm building my life on or that i'm living my life on and and, and most people kind of live live according to some ethical standards but they don't actually really know what they are they don't really get at the heart of their own principles. They don't really expose their own principles or think about them very hard. And I think you know what, what needs to be done and um, in, in, in this is what Amartya Sen, you know, to Amartya Sen's point is that we have to have a discussion where we really get get to these principles, where, where we can find what are what do we have in common and where are real genuine conflicts you know, are, are, are in, in, these principles, in these systems. And and then we get much closer, right? Because so we can solve a lot of problems because a lot of things will turn out to be similar. And, and so we can't solve all the problems, but we can solve, solve a whole host of them we can you know, together. And, and uh, that, that applies very crucially to technology, I think. And if, you know, we, we are all affected by technology. Uh, most of us don't understand how. Uh, actually, probably none of us really understand exactly how and all the ways in which we are affected by it. So it takes a lot of work to really uncover it and to try to see you know, what should be built, what should not be built, uh, that on one hand, and um, how are existing systems right now affecting us? Um, you know, uh, and and the various different ones, you know, different people uh, around the world are differently affected. You know, how does that work? How do people in the world think about that? You know, uh, and and especially people who have some experience in in technology. Who are experienced technologists, you know, in different places in the world and with different ethical principles? How do they think about it? How do ethicists around the world think about it? So, so I invite technologists, builders, engin- uh, innovators, thinkers, ethicists to my show that that uh, that have a uh, substantial um, who have who have uh, put a lot of a substantial amount of thought into technologies and and either technologies themselves or the ethics of it or both. Wow. <laughs> so that that's what the show is about. It's trying to be a global conversation. So a lot of the, the, the guests are not from America. Um, some of them are, but uh, you know, it's tr- it, I try to be somewhat globally representative. Rep- representative. So there should be about three times more people from India than there are from the U S because India has three times as many people. And, and, Presumably, also three times as many technologists, because there's a lot of technologists in India. So, so we have to also think about, you know, how many technologists there are, not just how many people there are. But there should, you know, so in India and America, you can you can sort of gauge that. In in Africa, there are fewer technologists, but there are still there are a lot of technologists. So, um, and and they have unique problems, unique um, unique uh, solutions, also. So they, they have unique startups and unique ideas and also unique ethical uh, ideas. So so I'm trying to bring all of that together and sort of bring to the surface what are these principles, what should we be aware of, and so on. And, you know, I can't do that on my own. I have to do that in a in, in, a, in a global conversation. And that's what I'm trying to do with this podcast. Wow.
1: You're ta- and here's the name of it. Utopias, dystopias, and today's technology. And you're already yeah. opened it up with uh, kind of sharing who you are and telling a little bit about what you're going to be doing so we're going to put a link to that yeah. on the on our blog post. We can let people know Thank about you. it. And yeah. okay. um, my goodness, oh my goodness, <laughs> <laughs> I I definitely want to not only listen, but um, especially because I'm very curious about where technology is going and what people think and what and the impact mm-hmm. of it. Um, especially since we had this discussion about. one thing i was trying to use and see you know if this is going to be worthwhile and i've used wolfram's you know the um what do you call it that grew (laughs) the 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 design (laughs) that he grew because i love the idea of the connections that we have and how they help us Mm um yeah this has been just amazing is there any um how can people reach you if they, and they definitely have to watch, go to the blog post because I'm going to put all of your contact. I'm going to put some of your um, links to some of your uh, talks.
2: Yeah. LinkedIn is a good one. LinkedIn is actually, by the way, LinkedIn is a good way to, to reach me. The other one is email. Johannes at Um You can email me if, uh, but, but probably LinkedIn is, is, is easy. I, I, it's probably a better way than, than email even because uh, a lot of things can get lost in the email.
1: Okay, and Johannes, I'm, you also have your own website, com. is that right?
2: Yes, yes. I'm still working on it. Uh, there are some improvements to be made I on I saw
1: that. some new things today. I mean, I was like, whoa, yeah, you're working yeah. well. I, I, you have the virtual cycles. I didn't, I started looking at, yes, yes, we're yes. going to have to do another one of these because this is just... <laughs>
2: Sounds great. I would love that. Would love that really. Is there
1: anything you want to just share with, you know, want to end with just one short thing?
2: Maybe, maybe for anyone who wants to get into technology or into say programming or, uh, you know, working in AI or so on, I, I have this message that you can, you can do that without having to be hired or for, uh, relying on anyone else by just simply contributing to open source projects. And when you do that, that's, that's what I did actually, uh, that's how I got hired into eBay, um, by the way, as, as as a senior data scientist, uh, just by contributing to an open source library that was produced there. So um, Neville Newey was uh, was the head of data science uh, who hired me. See,
1: you might do something and you may get this amazing job that leads to another amazing job, to another Envy, just like Johanna. Yeah. I mean, you're. <laughs> this has been amazing. Thank you so much for this.
2: It has been. Thank you very much. Oh, same here. You have. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. That was it.
1: wonderful. We're definitely going to come back. So, thank you so much. Have a wonderful day. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Rethinking Learning podcast and my conversation with Johannes Kastner. Check out the blog on barbabray.net that goes with this podcast. He has an amazing story. As a machine learning engineer, a consultant on AI strategy. He even tells us about his journey as an actor, a singer in a band, working for eBay and the Federal Reserve, and oh my gosh, there's so much more. Please share this podcast and post with your friends. They're going to love it. It would be awesome if you subscribe to my podcast. And even more amazing if you wrote a review. Subscribe to my website at barbabray.net to receive updates, more inspirational podcasts and reflections, and links to resources, stories, and more. Thanks again for listening. Keep sharing your story, and please stay safe and be well.